Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. In the meantime, just as you were heaving a sigh of relief this morning when you learned that World War III isn't about to break out, you may have also noticed that Donald Trump made official his long-anticipated bid to become US President again. Now, part of Trump's appeal, it seems, is that he doesn't come across as a politician. He certainly doesn't come across as an intellectual policy wonk. But is he the only one in this mould? In his new book, Profiles in Ignorance, Andy Barowitz argues that American politicians have been becoming dumber for years. Andy, good afternoon to you. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, you, there, there are three phases, if you like, uh, in the book. Uh, ridicule, acceptance uh, and celebration. And, and ridicule b- begins in the era when, uh, at the very least, politicians had the decency to try to pretend to be intelligent. That's right. In the ridicule stage, American politicians who were ignorant had to pretend to be smart. And so we had people like Ronald Reagan, who is really good on TV, but he didn't know much. And when I say he didn't know much, he didn't know that South America was composed of different countries. So that's sort of where he was at. (laughs) But he was a good, you know, he was a good TV host, so he could hide it. Then the problem was the Republicans kept on trying the same sort of science experiment of taking a lab app like Ronald, uh, Ronald, lab ape like Ronald Reagan and teach him stuff to make him seem smart. And it failed miserably with this guy named Dan Quayle. I don't know if you heard much about uh, yeah, him. Yeah, uh, we're very familiar with his, with his, <laughs> his spelling exploits and all the rest of it. The thing is, though, about Reagan, and it's an interesting cultural and political phenomenon, is is that even though at the time, and people would remember the jelly beans on his desk and that he never read any uh, any briefs about anything, you just had to tell it to him, that, that, that decades later, Obama is name-checking Reagan when he's running for election. That's right. That was one of the shocking things that I found when I was researching Profiles in Ignorance is that people who were really well-informed, like Obama and Bill Clinton, and you couldn't get wonkier than Bill Clinton. He could talk policy into all hours of the night. They were very enamored of Ronald Reagan's mastery of the media. It just shows the power of the media and TV, especially in American politics over the last 50 years, that these really smart guys want to imitate a guy who was really pretty dumb. And so the whole thing, you know, when you think of Obama, you think of hope, right? The audacity mm. of hope. And that was actually Reagan's message. Reagan talked on and on kind of meaninglessly about hope. And it worked for him. And, and Bill Clinton actually came from a town in Arkansas called Hope, Arkansas. And so <laughs> he made a film at the Democratic National Convention called The Man from Hope. So, yeah, it was a really weird spectacle to discover that these really well-informed politicians were imitating one of our most ignorant. Yeah, and and would you would you think it was perhaps a you know it, as you move into the acceptance phase that it was a deliberate strategy that there, there seemed to be a a correlation between appearing folksy and relatable uh, to voters meant also kind of a, a, a concomitant reduction in, in in intelligence somehow that that to do you know to get over that hump of the the ridicule phase is to actually kind of go yeah I am dumb. Well, totally. You know, that was what, when we moved from ridicule to acceptance, the guy who was really at the vanguard of that movement was George W. Bush, because mm. Bush knew no more than Quail. I actually have a quiz in the book to see if you can tell the difference between Bush and Quail, and it's really hard, because they were both terrible students, never read a book. But Bush actually did a really smart pivot, which is he said, you know, I don't, I don't know very much, but neither do you. Let's go get a beer. And people loved that. They thought he was like a regular guy. And he was running against 
a guy who was a very irregular guy, Al Gore, who kept on bragging about all these long books he'd read. And Americans did not like that. So George W. Bush really spearheaded this whole movement of acceptance. Let's embrace our ignorance. It means that we're authentic and we're normal and we're just like you. But didn't Bush also try to project the idea that, okay, I don't know everything, but I'm going to surround me with people who do know everything? Exactly. Um, That became his whole strategy. He would say, I'm going to surround myself with really smart folks. The problem is the people he surrounded himself with weren't very smart either. He surrounded himself with people like um, Dick Cheney, who flunked out of college, and Condoleezza Rice, who didn't really know what the Taliban and, and, and Iran were up to. She was an expert in Europe, which is really helpful when you're invading all these Middle Eastern countries to not know <laughs> anything about them. So there was this whole, yeah, it was, it was an era when, in the early 2000s, before the financial cri- uh, crisis, Americans kind of worshipped at the feet of CEOs. We said, well, Bush will be like a CEO. He went to Harvard Business School, and he'll just be really good at delegating. The problem is you talk to people who he went to Harvard Business School with, and they say that he was a really terrible student. He would throw paper airplanes around the classroom. So um, (laughs) it's just... It really does argue for actually having a president who will occasionally read a book or at least a two-page memo. Yeah, but, the, but I mean, I know your book's about American politicians, but doesn't that say something about all this say something about the American electorate as well? Sadly, it does. But I want to give the American electorate some credit because something really good happened last week, which is we got into what I would say was the fourth stage of ignorance which is correction. We had ridicule, acceptance, and celebration. And I said at the end of the book, I'm not acting like I'm Nostradamus or anything, so don't don't get me wrong, but I said that democracy has what I call a breaking system. And after a while, if you elect too many idiots, the voters say, hold on, <laughs> let's stop doing this. And so last week, um, the Democrats really delivered, I mean, the, the the voters really delivered kind of a punch in the mouth to all these election deniers and conspiracy theorists and really a huge number of them lost. And I, I, I don't want to, you know, do a victory lap just yet, but I was actually encouraged that, yeah, we've got a lot of dumb voters in America, but we've got some smart ones too. Yeah. Well, I mean, and to, you know, cover that, the celebration part of it and, and, and Donald Trump is, is if you like the, the, the ultimate example of that celebration of it in, in that, he can't speak that well. He, he comes across as not that well-read. Uh, um, but people love that because he's that's not, not very political sounding. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he has not read any books. Like he, even the book that he supposedly wrote, he didn't write The Art of the Deal. And mm. it, who knows whether he actually read it. But he is, he's really the icon of what I call the celebration phase, where you're not just embracing ignorance, but you're now saying, I, as an ignorant person, know more than scientists or experts. So that led to spectacles like the coronavirus task force meeting that was broadcast on American television, where he had all these scientists on stage, but he was just kind of riffing about ways to cure COVID. And he said, well, maybe if you injected bleach, Mm. that would cure it. Um, It certainly will cure COVID. It will also cure um, (laughs) life. (laughs) You will no longer be alive. Um, and he said, maybe if you could put, he said, COVID dies quickly in the lights and maybe we could put light inside the body. I'm not sure how he was going to do that. But that was the thing. He always said that he knew more than everybody. He knew more than the generals. He knew more than the scientists. And that's a really hallmark of the celebration phase is that people who are uninformed, uninformed, 
say that they magically know more people, know more than people who really have credentials. And so that's been kind of the dangerous phase we've been in for the last several years in America. Mm. Uh, Is it arguable that Sarah Palin really uh, um, uh, was the trailblazer there in terms of uh, uh, letting Donald Trump arrive? Absolutely. I say in the book that she's really the gateway ignoramus that led to Donald Trump because she lowered the bar so far that um, he just had to kind of ooze under it. Um, she she really couldn't <laughs> name any couldn't name any Supreme Court decisions that she disagreed with besides Roe v. Wade, the famous one, and she um, couldn't name a single newspaper that she read. And even though she didn't get elected vice president in two thousand eight it suddenly became plausible that you could have somebody who's as gigantic a nincompoop as Sarah Palin be almost one heartbeat away from the presidency. And so she really, to me, she was kind of a very important figure in American history. She's kind of a, she's, she's ridiculed because, you know, our comedian Tina Fey did such a hilarious imitation of her, but she had for a while there after the election, she had a very loyal following in the American movement known as the Tea Party, which doesn't really exist anymore. But the, mm. the Tea Party was kind of a um, it was kind of a, a training ground for people who would later consider themselves MAGA Republicans, make America great again. They were angry. They had a lot of grievances. They were mainly white. And those were kind of that was sort of the um, minor league team that you know, got promoted when when Donald Trump became president. Yeah. The thing is, though, now Trump's uh, uh, declared, as everybody expected. Now, uh, as I understand, Rupert Murdoch has said that um, he's not going to support him. The New York Post is already running uh, Trumpy Dumpty front pages about him. (laughs) Fox News isn't going to support him. Um, And given that he's a politician, that's all about the grievance. He's got so many grievances. He'll rip the Republican Party apart uh, rather than let them not support him, which is the dumbest thing he could possibly do. So therefore, uh, going by your thesis, that's probably what he will do. Well, you know, he has a history of self-destruction, not just many bankruptcies. But let me give you a good example that may not have made it over to Ireland, which is um, back um, a few decades, a bunch of rich guys decided that they wanted to launch a football league to challenge the NFL. So they came up with this thing called the USFL. And Donald Trump was the owner of the New Jersey Generals in the USFL. And he hired as a running back, by the way, Herschel Walker, who's now running for the <laughs> Senate in, in uh, Pennsylvania. So anyway, the whole premise of the USFL, which was kind of smart, could have worked, was that they were going to have football games during the part of the year, the spring and the summer, when the NFL wasn't playing. And Donald Trump, in his infinite wisdom, said, no way. The only way this is going to work is if we go head to head with the NFL. And they got killed. And so he's kind of doing it all over again. There's this huge kind of locomotive coming down the tracks in the form of not just Ron DeSantis, but all these other aspirants who have a cleaner slate than than he does. I don't really think um, he's going to be elected president again. But, yeah, he'll just take down the whole house with him. He'll just burn the whole thing to the ground, and he won't care. He is One thing about Donald Trump, his grievances are very authentic. He doesn't have to fake them. He's a very aggrieved guy. For a guy who grew up rich and privileged, he has a ton of grievances, and he will just take them take them down. He'll take everybody down with him. Yeah. Actually, Herschel Walker is another example of what you're talking about. Uh, he, <laughs> totally. He, even Dave Chappelle thinks Herschel Walker is stupid. 
<laughs> what did Dave Chappelle say about her? Uh, now, he said you can see he goes down with his mouth open. You know, when he did the Saturday Night Live opening yeah, monologue yeah. that nobody expected he'd do, and he went on his usual thing about Jews. But he did detour to have a go at Herschel Walker, I suppose, in the, uh, in the name of balance. That, oh, good. Yeah. Good. I, I'm glad that Herschel Walker is taking some of the heat off of Jews. We've suffered enough. Yes. <laughs> the, um, uh, the, uh, first thing, isn't this kind of p- potentially disastrous for American politics in general? Because you need to have a Republican Party. Maybe yeah. not, not a crazy one, but you do need a Republican Party. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think I don't think one party rules is a good idea. And I think you do need to have a legitimate Republican Party. But the problem is, and I sort of show this in the book, the Republican Party has been on this mission to become kind of a minority party, like a, just to represent angry white people. And as angry white people become a minority in the United States of America, the Republican Party is destined to follow that same trajectory. So they're going to have to open up their tent. First of all, they've got to start accepting non-angry white people, <laughs> start appealing to some <laughs> white people who aren't pissed off, and then maybe you know, start attracting women who actually want to have autonomy over their bodies, you know, things like that. They've made their tent smaller and smaller by becoming this really kind of extremist organization. And America, you know, for all the stuff you see on Twitter and all the lab maps and everything, we're not really an extremist country. We'll swing in that direction, either left or right. But ultimately, the pendulum kind of swings back in the, to, to the middle and because we don't have a parliamentary democracy, we have this weird democracy where you have the House and the Senate could be a different party from the presidency. What Americans really like is we like gridlock. We complain about gridlock. We say, oh, nothing gets done in Washington. But we like it that way. We don't like Washington accomplishing too much. We like it to move very, very incrementally. So I think that um, the Republicans are going to have to eventually take a really hard look at themselves and say, do we want to go the way of these, you know, minor parties, because America's had other parties in the past, like the Whigs that don't exist anymore. Do we want to be like the Whigs or do we want to be, you know, a viable major political party? And that's going to require kind of cleansing themselves of this most extreme um, right wing. It's not even right wing. It's a racist white nationalist element, if I had Mm. to describe it. uh, Now, obviously, we've talked almost exclusively about uh, Republican politicians. Is there any evidence in in, within the Democratic Party or are their difficulties different? Well, the Democrats have certainly produced a lot of dumb politicians. I mean, I think sometimes they've had very well-educated politicians who thought they could lawyer their ways out of anything. Bill Clinton was a good example of that when, you know, he was in the Monica Lewinsky scandal and he was he was parsing the word is and he said depends on what the meaning of the word is. <laughs> yes. is. That's a pretty stupid that's a very stupid statement from a very smart guy. And we've had other guys like Andrew Cuomo and Elliot Spitzer and all these guys who've gotten into sex scandals, but kind of thought they were so smart that they could kind of talk their way out of it. It's a problem of um, you know, you go, it's almost like a, a, you know, continuum. You go get to be so smart and so well-educated and so loyally that you become an idiot. And so we have that problem that repeats itself again and again. The other problem the Democrats have had in the past is they've been really dumb about the mass media. So, you know, they were up against people like Ronald Reagan, who were really good at TV and they kind of ignored that TV existed. And, and, you know, you had guys like, um, Mike Dukakis, who ran in, in 1988, who thought that like a video, a, a photo op of him riding around in a tank 
looking like Snoopy was a great way to get elected. <laughs> so, so that's been kind of looked down. The, the guy who kind of nailed it, I've got to say, is Barack Obama, because Barack Obama, incredibly well-educated, um, but he was really good on TV, and he did simplify his message down to kind of bite-sized bumper mm. sticker. Um, and it's sort of sad that you have to do that in America. I think it's become a problem worldwide with mass media having such an influence on politics. But, you know, it was the same thing in the UK with the Brexit the Brexit campaign. It all boiled down to take back control. It was like a very, very simple slogan. It's led to utter chaos and disaster in the UK, but it, it won them the referendum. So it, it's a problem that we're going to deal with where, um, unfortunately, smart people have to dumb down their message and we kind of fall for dumb messages and I'm only the only hope I hold out is what I said about correction. I do I do think when we get overtired with these incredibly dumb politicians, eventually we slam on the brakes and say enough is enough. Yeah, is there is there a path back? I mean, you kind of slightly outlined it, but is there a path back for American politics in general? to represent Americans in general, because it seems so hopelessly divided that uh, there, there are probably more than one side in this, but they have absolutely no trust of the other side or sides. Yeah, it's gotten very tribal, and um, and it wasn't always that way. It's gotten way more tribal in, in the last 10 years or so. Um, I think in America, we always, about half the country, always disagrees with the other half of the country. It's just a question of how we disagree, if we can be civil and democratic and and kind of nice to each other not i mean politics is a rough game but what i propose in the book is that if we as citizens get more involved in local politics that's the beginning of the solution because the problem in america is that everything all this ignorance trickles down you remember trickle down economics Mm -hmm. we have trickle down ignorance in america it starts with our leaders and then trickles down to us and then we're at each other's throats. And if you go to like a local town meeting or a council meeting, you're in the same room with the people you disagree with. And it kind of forces you to be less of a jerk. You have to be a little bit more civil. And so if ignorance trickles down, I think knowledge can actually rise up. We can become less tribal if we've been in the same room with people we disagree with. And we realize, hey, wait a minute, we disagree with that guy, but maybe that's not the end of the world. Maybe we can still kind of carry on with our lives and be not jerky with each other. So it's a little bit, I would say, idealistic, a little bit optimistic. But again, I feel like the results of the most recent election and the results of, you know, if you look at like all the vote counting that goes on, that has to be like local officials, Democrats and Republicans working together. And one thing that we don't talk much about is we had all these elections last week and they went incredibly smoothly. There mm. were no fistfights. There was no screaming. And even the election deniers, which was so remarkable, all these election deniers that Trump had endorsed, they all conceded graciously. It was like, is everybody like on drugs or something? What's going on here? Like Americans, <laughs> Americans being civil and nice to each other. What the heck is happening? So I, you know, again, one election does not make a trend or does not mean the stop of a, the end of a terrible trend. But it's a reason to be kind of encouraged, I think. Andy, thanks a million for speaking with us today. That was Andy Barowitz there. He's the author of Profiles in Ignorance. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2pm. On News Talk.